Josh Holder. Saul Agnan. Marcus Boykin. El Navajas and the Mexican Sicarios. Steve Horn. Commander Cox. Admiral Pillar. Captain Howard. Alright guys, today we will cover the final two episodes, seven and eight, in the Terminal List TV show on Amazon Prime, and to join us is a special guest and friend of the podcast. Welcome, Eric Bishop. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you, Mike. Of course, and before we get started, I'm glad you're here to take an author's perspective As an author with one hit debut book, The Body Man, and you even have a second one coming out pretty soon. Is that right? Uh, Breach of Trust. I'm supposed to deliver it to the publisher this month, and uh, we don't have a release date yet, so I would assume probably 2023 at this point, but hopefully not too deep into 2023. So I should know that in a couple, hopefully another month or so, I'll know the release date. Fantastic. Well, before we get started, just tell the folks a little bit about The Body Man, because I loved it crazy good book and a lot of similarities here between what Jack Carr is doing with James Reese. You definitely do with the body man. Well, I would definitely love some similarities to be, you know, an Amazon prime series. That sure would be a cool, uh, that'd be a cool similarity to have, uh, but you know, baby steps, baby steps. Uh, no, you know, like we talked about back in the fall, first book released, but actually my fourth book completed. What I try to always tell people is, you know, it's it's a marathon, not a race. So The Body Man really was a culmination of me kind of learning how to write. You know, those first three books were kind of my internship in a way, my apprenticeship. And, you know, finally The Body Man hit and uh, follows a Secret Service agent or someone who used to be a ser- Secret Service agent. His job now is to protect the actual office of the presidency. When he goes missing, uh, a whole lot of people want to know why and who he is and what information does he have. And the uh, FBI is involved. It, uh, it it would make a good Prime series if, uh, you know, if anyone's listening. So <laughs> great. Book. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate the support you guys have given me. It means a lot. Sure, sure. So I've asked this to all of our guests so far who came on to review episodes of The Terminalist. Let's take a step back. What did it feel like when you were first able to click play, sit down and watch James Reese come to life on the big screen? I was pretty excited. So, so it was it, it was a mix of uh, excitement and also I knew we were going to be talking about this. So I knew I only had about seven days. Um, I also happened to I exchange weeks with my kids in the summer. So it was actually starting uh, Friday was going to be my first day with the kids for a week. And so I was really wondering how in the world am I going to binge watch this series and talk to you guys Fortunately, Amazon dropped it a day early. They dropped it Thursday evening. That's right. So once, that's right. I, once I got done with my other responsibilities, um, I hit play. I was very excited to hit play. And um, I finished episode five about 3 a.m. Then I had to go to sleep for a little bit so I could do my nine to five job Friday morning. I watched two more episodes when the, while the kids were here after they went to bed Friday night. So that was another like two o'clock night. And then I saved episode eight for I think, uh, I think it was Sunday or Monday night. I don't remember now. But yeah, you know, it was it was a really cool experience, especially because this has been in the works for so long. I remember just even conversations with Jack talking about this and and how it happened, um, how he you know how how it came to fruition for him to have the series uh, made. So uh, definitely a lot of anticipation, and um, and you know, obviously we'll get into my thoughts on it. But you know, for, I was super excited to hit play and um, loved the way it started. Of course, it started a little different from the book starting in Syria versus Afghanistan. But again, the way I look at that real quick is that, you know, the book is one thing, a visual representation is a completely another thing at times. The feel of it, even though it was different, it wasn't in, you know, caves in Afghanistan, um, you know, it was happening in the sewers in Syria under a building or a compound or whatever. Um, It had that raw feeling. And, uh, you know, the way those guys were going through the tunnels and the tripwire and everything going on. I mean, it was pretty, that, that tension was, was palpable those first 
15, 20 minutes of the series. So very well done. Well, thanks for making the sacrifice to binge it so quickly so you could join <laughs> us. I had a similar uh, bingeable story. We were headed to the beach. We were going down to Myrtle Beach. And we get to the okay. beach house. And I'm like, perfect. Every night, watch two or three episodes. We'll get this thing done in just a couple of days. Yep. And then there's no TV. Well, <laughs> the, the beach house had a really small, old, beat-up TV. And I was like, no way. No way. No way. So I went out the first night I got there right away and picked up a 55 inch that is now donated to the beach house <laughs> just because I wanted that to be able to see the right show. There. Dude, I, I was not going to settle for a small junkie. It was a really dark screen. I was like, I want on a big, nice screen for this experience. So I took the hit and uh, and made it happen. <laughs> I'm thinking Car or Pratt could probably donate back that, uh, that 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 investment. You know, they could probably you know you know Venmo use some uh, a few a few shekels, <laughs> or maybe uh, Jeff Bezos. You know, just out of the Amazon pocket. I think Jeff most certainly could buy you that beach house and uh, everyone next to it, all the way down the beach, and never even see that that money was gone. <laughs> Let me text him. Just give me a second. Just gonna yeah, absolutely. Okay. If, if you can remind him that uh, he hasn't answered back about the body man too while you're at it, I'd appreciate it. So, <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into it. Let's get to episode seven. It's called Extinction. And to me, this episode represents the best storytelling of the whole series. I think narratively and thematically speaking, it advances the plot so well. It's closing a lot of loops. And while it's doing that, it's also building towards a crescendo of a final action set piece. I feel like it was just a gripping episode that had no inconsistencies, you know, that take you out of the action wondering, wait, what, why, who? Instead, you were just bought in from the get go. And while it's doing that, it's also really digging into Reese, the person and the psychological effects of everything he's been through. It has that really massive flashback scene that we're going to have to get to where he's stumbling mm -hmm. throughout the house and sees Lauren and Lucy and all these memories come flooding back. So right. how do you feel about that? It really uh, opens at the Reese house. Yeah, it absolutely does. I, you know, I think, again, I, I view it, and as we talked about off camera too, I do not remember all the specifics from the book because it's been four years. Um, was it, I think I read it in July of 2018, if I recall. Uh, yeah, July of 2018 is when I read it. I, met it. I read it actually the week after I met Jack in New York. Um, and I spent some time with him in New York and um, got him to sign my book and everything. So that was super cool. And I came home and I had not read it yet. So I read it and I read it and I know it was less than a week. I don't remember how many days it was, but I read it over, over several nights after work. So that's actually a blessing in a way that some of the specific details of the book kind of got lost to time, just to my writing projects, all the other books I've read. So so I do view it as a its own entity. And definitely, yeah, episode seven and, and all the stuff that takes place in the house, it really gets into Reese's head. And you see how you see how tormented he is in a, it really, in a way, which you would expect he would be after what happened with his with his family. I know the one thing that I thought was just brilliant on whoever in the writing team or, or Antoine, whoever, whoever came up with the idea of the bird going into the window and to keep yes. going back to that um, and to his daughter to keep asking, is the bird going to be, is she going to be okay? Is the bird going to be yeah. okay? You know, there was a lot deeper meaning there to that. So the, the layers to it, I thought were quite, uh, were quite good. Yeah, that really was an artistic, creative addition that only works visually, right? That's not a scene you can have reoccurring throughout a book with before it gets really stale. But yeah. visually, they could tinker with it each time they're looking at the dead bird or each time she asks the question. It right. represents a different dynamic the family's going through with Reese on deployment. Is he the injured bird? His mental uh, health issues that he's going through right now. So yeah, really creative choice that was can only be done through visual storytelling, and I like that that motif has a big payoff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and again, that visual thing, and I think people do sometimes get hung up on the book versus 
the adaptation. And I will say I'm a hypocrite in, in, with what I'll say next because I definitely got hooked or I got caught up into that when I watched uh, Without Remorse last year. Right. Uh, that was one of my favorite Clancy books. And so I tried to have an open mind and I sat down and watched Without Remorse and I it was could rough. not stand it. Could not stand it. Was it. Rough. Yeah. And I didn't even, and again, another story that I couldn't remember all the details, but my brain kept saying wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> my brain remembered even if or my subconscious remembered if my brain really wasn't connecting the dots. And so definitely after that experience with this one, I, I wanted to go in with the clean mind of going, okay, you, you kind of know how the sausage is made a little bit. So go in looking at this as an adaptation of a work and, and a, for, for a vi visual medium. And part of it too, I think, is the fact that Jack was involved. Yes. That I yeah. think set me at ease as a viewer and as a fan of his books. Because, and I don't think people realize this, um, and maybe they do, but typically when Hollywood buys the rights to something, the first thing they do is cut the writer out. Exactly. They don't want the novelist, you know, they don't want them on set saying, uh, uh, that's not what I wrote. That's not what I said. They don't want to hear them. And so the fact that Jack was able to have that opportunity to not only have his voice heard, but to actually be in the, you know, I think it was all done via Zoom because of COVID, but to be in the writer's room, to be on the scripts, to be going over it. And then I think he was on set. I know he said it in one of the interviews that I saw how many times he was on set, but you know, he ended up being on set for five of the weeks or six of the weeks yeah. or whatever yeah. it ended up being. I actually texted him one time and he was on set. And I, I, I think I had missed Pratt by a couple seconds or whatever. Oh, Chris is already gone. And I'm like, you know, darn it. My, my claim to <laughs> fame is over. So, Can you just slip, uh, you know, the body man on, on his shelf in the garage with all the other yeah, books? <laughs> I mean, can't you just hand him a copy? What in the world, Jack? So, no, I, I wouldn't. And I would never. I would never. But, um, no, I think with him, having him on set and – just having a lot of seals on set, having um, drawn a blank, Jared um, Shaw. Jared Shaw. There we go. Sorry, trying to trying to get real names versus Boozer. Boozer, the, yeah, Boozer is <laughs> the name of the show. Uh, but having Jared on set and, and play a role too, which was really yeah. cool, creates a lot of trust. It creates a team. Absolutely. Well, it created a brotherhood. Yeah, and a brotherhood. Yeah. I watched a little bit. I think Jack also his podcast is doing a breakdown of the episodes with Jared and with the showrunner, David. And they briefly had brought up one of the, and I didn't catch much of it. I just caught a little piece. I'm, I'm very slow on watching podcasts most of the time or listening to them, but they were basically talking about the brotherhood and how so many seals were involved in this, that they, they had so many layers that could see about the authenticity. Yeah. And, and that comes through, that comes through in all the scenes. And again, I'm no military background myself. And most of my contacts and close friends actually are army, not Navy, but I know from all the stuff I've watched, all the stuff I've read, all the stuff I've researched from my own books, this feels authentic. The scenes with the seals is authentic. Um, I've been to Coronado. I've actually watched the seals running up and down the beach, carrying the logs um, in person when I was there years ago. It's, it's those details that when they get right, people get drawn in the story better versus a detail that's done wrong will pull you out of a story, whether yeah. it's the yeah. written part or the visual and that part, you know, that part, I think they got right for sure. And that's that's a perfect transition, because I think one of the best decisions that was added to the show that wasn't in the book was including the buds visuals carrying the I log. Agree. I think it's one of the very opening scenes here yes. and ringing the bell and they do show the bell and it, it just really made it feel authentic. And then the Commander Cox storyline. I thought that was a really smart play yeah. that he was added to the list because I think in the books he wasn't necessarily on the list. Okay. And then to mirror that with Reese's time in Buds and how Commander Cox was giving him the business. If you were half the CL your father was and Yeah, exactly. Man, that's gonna come full circle when his name is added to the list. And I guess right. one last thing that makes me think of Extinction is the show title. Reese is kind of having to grapple with the extinction of that brotherhood as he thought sure. he knew it. You know, Commander Cox knew his father. He was his bud's uh, instructor. And then the very end of episode eight, there's an extinction with the brotherhood. So what do you think right. about adding the bud scenes here and having Commander Cox's? Uh, what do you think about that kill? Because that kill was not in the book, how he got Commander Cox. 
See, I, I didn't remember what that was in the book. All I know is watching that episode and watching him basically, you know, tethered to that log, you could feel yourself like going under. You could feel like, man, that right. would be a crappy way to go. You, you know, you're going to drown. Um, I thought it was great. And again, especially since I've actually been on that beach before, I've watched what those guys go through in a very small couple you know, minutes. I was there just watching the guys um, run it, and they were just running up down the beach. They weren't in the water with the, uh, with the logs or anything, but no, I thought it was a very good and it's very powerful moment. And absolutely. Like you said, with, with, with having the bell and, and Jack's talked about that a lot over the years in his podcast, you know, I think people that have not been through that myself being one of them, you always immediately think of, man, you don't want people to ring the bell. But Jack always said, no, I want people to ring that bell because right. I want the people that are there with me, that are serving with me. I want to know they're able to do what's required of them and they won't quit because quitting right. typically right. Won't, won't just kill you. It'll kill the guy next to you. Yeah. It might kill the whole platoon. Yeah. I thought that was, um, I, I thought with Cox and I think the extinction, you know, I, I made a few little notes here was, uh, flip as I was watching the episode. I, I think the extinction extinction really could apply. And again, I don't know, but it could apply to not just Cox, but also Howard. And pillar, you know what yeah. they did with with Warcom, basically the extinction of the this hierarchy within Warcom, end of honor, the the extinction of dignity and honor and yes. all the values of the Brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. Well, and just that scene, and I know that scene was a lot different that took place in Admiral's office, and I'm sure we'll get into more details of that. But the the betrayal that takes place, yes, and and that's something again. I I, I only know it through hearing Jack's stories, reading books, reading books by other SEALs and other people that have served. I don't have that. I don't have that muscle memory of, of living through it or whatever, but I do know guys that, you know, I have friends that serve in fifth group. Um, one retired um, about a year and a half ago. I guess now one of them's still in. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago on his birthday, actually. And I know just within them, within the group, you know, within the army, within fifth group, you know, it's a brotherhood. Those guys become, you know, I, I've been at their houses. I've stayed with them. I see how they interact. Uh, they're as close as any brothers. And I'm sure even more so when you've got a really small group like these SEAL teams, you know, and they're, they train together, obviously, constantly, but they're on, you know, they're the tip of the spear. The missions they're going on really are life or death and really are situations where you have to be the best of the best to execute. And so when one of those people betrays you or when the, when the commanding officer, you know, in, in a situation with the terminalist, when the commanding officers are the ones that are part of the betrayal, part of the knowledge of what they're doing to these guys and what they're giving to them, you can understand why someone like Reese essentially snaps and says, I'm going to burn it all down. Don't blame him. Yeah. Don't blame him at all. Betrayal is such an important theme here that goes hand in hand with, well, I would say the two best performances of this episode and possibly the best performances of the last few episodes, I think go to the Admiral and Captain Howard. The way Captain Howard absolutely freaks out, and we talked about ringing the bell, the way he quits, yeah. he wants to get his family out, he's quivering, his family is freaked out by him, and then Ben shows up at the door. I just love that moment. And here's the deal. The Captain Howard kill in the book was actually what happened with his intestines getting cut out and pinned to a tree. So me and all the other readers are thinking, what's going to happen to Captain Howard? Because he was supposed to be killed with that method. I yeah. think it was a brilliant decision to make him the one who wears the vest because in the book, for anyone who doesn't know, Mike Tedesco wore the vest and went into the Admiral's office, who owned the company for RD4895. Tedesco was often in and out of the Admiral's office, and that was explained away that you know the Admiral was dealing with a lot of contractors, right? And so contractors were right. always in and out of his office. I don't sure. think if you put that on screen, I think the second you see one of the guys on the business end of things actually at Warcom, you know, it's done. It's just too clear cut that there's a conspiracy here. So you, you, yeah. I don't think you could have mixed the business guys of episode three, four, and five and had them in Warcom. So they kind right. of were separated visually. And because of that, it was super important that someone else had to wear the suicide vest. And sure. when 
the decision was made to make that Captain Howard's kill. If anybody complains about that as being different than the book, they're completely wrong because it made <laughs> so much sense. And then Captain Howard's performance in that scene and the scenes with his family is just unbelievable and extraordinary. So I think switching those two kills, the drug cartel and Captain Howard, so they each got the other type of kill, I thought was a, a great decision that worked. Yeah, and that was going to take me back to the scene, you know, where they're on the beach when they're in front of the vehicle with his wife and his uh, his son. Haunting. Yeah. Oh, and, I mean, for, and, and that meant, in that instance, I didn't sympathize with Howard as much, but I saw from his perspective of, man, what do you do as a father? You know you've screwed up. You know you've done something or been a part of it, whether you had your hands in it, you know, whether you... We're making the decisions or not. You, you had your hands in the cookie jar, right? And having your hands in there resulted in the loss of a lot of lives. Now your family is possibly going to pay the consequences to what you did. Um, and are you willing to then finally, you know, at the very end, man up and make the decision to take the responsibility? And, and that was—I mean, that was as a dad—that was a hard scene just to watch. Because you get why they're doing it, and you get why Reese would do it, but also he's just about to cross. You know, I don't know if he, you know, would he have completed what he was starting to do or not? But he was getting ready to cross that line, yeah. enter, you know, out of that gray area of, you know, Howard was culpable, of course, but are his wife and kids, uh, his wife and child culpable? No, just just like Reese's wife his and daughter family. were exactly. He says that too. He said, yeah. I had a family once, you know, when Captain Howard was trying to plead for his family's life. Reese was like, so did I. Yeah, so did I. Absolutely. And that was a real powerful scene. Um, just, uh, yeah, and I, I agree. Again, like we talked about earlier, I think you have to separate. And I had forgot it was Howard that actually, and I think that took place in the Everglades in the book, right? Right. He took him out into like a swamp. I don't know where exactly, but a, a mangrove uh, swamp. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was in some kind of a swampy environment. So. That was, well, I don't remember what episode that was, maybe five or six, five, five. Well, he does it to the drug Lord, which must've been the Mexico episode three or four. Three or four. Okay. It also made sense to switch that though, because El Navajas, the, the drug cartel leader, he was actually the one with the forearm wound, which means he's the one who killed Lauren and Lucy. So right. saving the most gruesome kill for him, I just thought was a really smart decision. And I was one. I, I I remembered how it happened in the book. I didn't remember the character it was in the book. I just remember the scene in the book. And my brain, I will say, did a back. I know an episode we're not talking about, but back to that episode, my brain did like the book version better, only because of what he did with the entrails of right. how he did that. I wondered as you know it was coming up. I know Jack had hinted in some of the uh, press releases on this of. You guys know what scene really made the book, and I want to let you know that you know that that, that does occur. And so I was kind of wondering how that is going to happen. Yeah. And so and so I'm I'm glad they worked it in. And I mean, uh, you know, it's one of those scenes that could become too graphic quickly. Exactly. And I think the way the book probably explained it probably would have been too graphic for for viewers. It probably might have turned people off. But um, I don't. In the book, it worked really well, and it definitely worked yeah. good on the visual of what they did. Yeah, I think we need to be satisfied that Amazon greenlit it because in the book, he takes a few <laughs> laps around that tree with his intestines strangling that tree tighter and tighter. And then I think Jack said that method of kill was used by a lot of indigenous groups in the Americas. I know the Incas for sure used it. Yes. And then also, I think some North American indigenous groups. And it wasn't even the bleeding out part that killed you. It was while you were bleeding out next to this tree that you're tied to by your small intestine, the animals mm -hmm. eat you as well. So there's even exactly. more torture. Uh, Amazon, at least you greenlit it because I, I, no one should be watching that on screen. <laughs> no, the I whole know. thing. <laughs> I, I think sometimes we have this false idea that violence, you know, especially in our culture with guns in the United States, with everything you see in the news, uh, people have this uh, assumption that, well, you know, it was a little bit nicer back in the day, or there wasn't so many weapons. There wasn't this. It's like, no, it was more brutal back in the day. You know, when you were, when you were quartered, you know, and there was a right. lot of ways people were killed. Um, and, you know, they, they weren't quick deaths always. You know, a 50 cal bullet to the head, 
you're turned off as soon as that lead pierces the flesh. You don't feel a thing at that point. You do when you're tied to a <laughs> to a mangrove tree and the croc starts eating you or whatever starts nibbling on you. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Though, you know what also sucks? Taking 1,400 ball bearings, you know, to the chest. Because that's also gruesome when Reese is on the phone and Captain oh, yeah. Howard's there quivering. And what does he say? A um, hundred ball bearings for each of my friends. Yes, per, per man that was killed. One hundred per, per seal man. that you murdered. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, oh. another one of those, another one of those things they put in there that I, that sticks with you, and that is a powerful moment. It evokes a lot of emotion. Um, it brings you into that scene, and it lets you see the, it lets you see the reality of what befalls the admiral by what he, by the decisions he made. Really. Right. You know, that scene is even elevated as I think about it in a couple of earlier cuts when Reese and Ben are preparing for that. You see Reese sewing the vest together and you're kind of wondering what he's doing. The readers knew, of course, because we knew a suicide vest had to come, but he even tries it on himself. Yes. And that happens at the same time when I think he calls Katie at another scene and apologizes to her. I never meant for it to get this deep. And even as Ben, right, Ben, you're going to get caught up in this. He apologizes to Ben. He says, I'm sorry I brought you into this. And Ben says, you didn't bring me into it. They brought me into it, which certainly yeah. ends up to be true. But all of this and and Reese just had that crazy flashback. I think we're led to believe that he's going to wear the vest that and Ben even says, are you sure you want to do this? And the whole time, if I hadn't read the book, I would be thinking, does Reese wear the vest? And that's how he goes against the admiral, the commander and the captain. And then, man, when they take the family and he he, he tells Captain Howard, if you do this one thing for me, the thing I asked you to, you'll save your family. Yes. And then cut scene and he's walking into the admiral's office. So that scene is kind of built up through three or four other interactions that come earlier in the episode. And that's another reason I say this one might be my favorite. And I think just narratively, it's the best episode for storytelling because of how things like that are done. Well, and because the storytelling takes place because there's in this scene, especially there's not wall to wall action. There's not. I don't know that scene episode seven really has any gun battles or anything. I think it's, you know, uh, Warcom blowing up is a pretty good, you know, uh, finale to it, of, of course. But yeah, I think in that sense, there is, I I think you're right, that there's a lot more storytelling in this episode and a lot more into Reese's, you know, what's going on with him psychologically. And again, another thing that I think the way they elicited what's happening to him in the the flashbacks is a powerful, powerful way to do it. Yeah. In that house, as he's contemplating what's about to come with killing Commander Cox and using the suicide vest. Lauren tells him that she's pregnant, which was also in the book. It wasn't just Lucy. It was their right, other exactly. unborn child. Yes, so they're picking out baby names together in the flashback. And then she cuts to yelling at him. How could you go on one more deployment? You said you were done three deployments ago, which right. I can only imagine is a very familiar conversation to our operators. Yeah. And she blames him. She says, you say you're doing this to protect us, but you're really, you know, going on deployment for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Lucy wins a spelling bee trophy. I just feel like all these flashbacks are just reminding Reese what he could have had and what he should have had. And because of that, he's more likely to follow through on the list and do whatever it takes. And that puts him in the mindset where he could take Captain Howard's family and hold them hostage. That That's a good way to look at it. Um, remind me too, because you seem to be remembering the book much better than I in the book. Is it is the the list was he using a crayon in the book to write it or no? Oh, and then at one point he uses blood right on the show. He crosses one name. Yeah, in the show he uses blood. I was my brain was telling me that in the book he used a crayon. He used one of her crayons, and I just couldn't remember if that was my brain not remembering something or creating a situation. No, I think you're right because he gets a lot more of the names up front. One of the earlier interrogations, like Saul Agnon. Mm-hmm. Sings like a bird and gives him five or six names all at once. So okay. I think you're right. He does write the list down really more in one complete sit down where in the show, 
it's kind of like a video game. One guy leads to the next guy who gives you information for the next level. And then that yes. brings you to the next boss, which totally worked here. But yeah, I, th- I think you're right about that. Well, it builds drama too. So if the, if again, the visual and like we've discussed the visual medium medium, I think has to be different from the book medium. And if the visual medium started with him early in the first episode, having a complete list, you've taken so much drama and so much suspense out of later episodes because you don't know who the bad guys are. Right. If it plays out that way. But if you have a list to start the show, every time those characters come up, be like, Oh, well, he's going to kill them at some point. They're bad. Um, versus leaving it onto the own of going, oh, you know, even earlier in the in the show with uh, with secretary Hartley, you know, is she good? Is she not? I mean, y- you can multiple episodes, you can kind of see either way. I um, mean, wonder, and it's always that wonder of is this person, you know, going to be? Is, are they going to make the list? Basically, and building that suspense, I want to talk about Lorraine Hartley, which will definitely come uh, maybe episode eight once we transition in a moment here. Can we trust her or not? Is she being truthful? That's up in the air for me. But one other way they build suspense is that while Reese is crossing off a few names of his list, Katie is still trying to do what she does best, which is get the scoop. Unfortunately, she is taken in by the Fugitive Task Force and Tony Leone's team. But even while she's basically under arrest with the FBI, not able to leave this room, she's still asking questions. And she's still negotiating. And one thing she convinces Tony to do is that in your investigation, if you want to get to the bottom of this, why Reese is doing what he's doing, look at Steve Horn's computer. You're going to trace the money. You're going to see the financials. Tony buys it. The FBI does look into it. And that's what leads him to go to Warcom, knowing Reese is going to show up there because all these guys are linked, making millions off of the Nubellum sale. But yeah, one absolutely. one point of suspense is that last payment. Oberon Analytics, there's $20 million unaccounted for. Were you thinking it was Hartley? Did you think she was the final player profiting off this? Or did you have a hint at what was coming? Yeah, definitely it was where I was thinking. Um, just watching the episodes, absolutely. Thinking, okay, there's 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 that the big, you know, the, there's the whale at the end. You know, there's yes. the one person the casino is watching out for. You got the whale coming in. Who's it going to be? And yeah, so I think because she was sprinkled throughout all the other episodes, well, she's got to factor in somehow. So is she factoring in as the white knight that helps save in the end, or has she been pulling strings all along and doing it for nefarious purpose, you know, for, for money, which you, you hate to be cynical, but at the end of the day, and we're not talking politics here clearly, but at the end of the day, you know, there's enough stories out there that, you know, I, I was telling my kids about it recently. We were just talking about politics and different stuff and, and, you know, payoffs and all the, th- how these people get in the office and, you know, their, their base salary is 160,000. And after, you know, five terms in office, 10 years, they come out and they, you know, they're worth $40 million. Well, okay. I, I know what I make a year and I'm not going to be making 40 million in my lifetime, even if I pay, save every penny. So yeah, it's unbelievable. And, I think the book maybe and, and a lot of thrillers play into the political side of things much more than the TV show did and the corruption. Yes. I think here it was the command structure from Admiral Pillar down. It right. was also the business side of things. The show maybe skirted the politics, which is probably a good move because while it's more in the books that Lorraine Hartley and her husband, in fact, is in the book are angling for a White House run. They're supposed to be shoo-ins right. for the next election. You, you see a lot more angling on the Hill. I'm kind of glad it didn't do that. I think right now we needed to be a little removed from politics in our entertainment. Yeah. And the story just didn't need that dimension because it had so much complexities as is. Uh, but yeah, maybe absolutely. down the road, who knows if some of the later books, which definitely I think still continue to have a political aspect to them. That might be something mm-hmm. they, they try to work in later. Well, and I, th- I, I, I think in a way this was, you know, the way they did this um, series, basically it was so respectful to the SEAL community. Yes. To the sacrifices they do. And I think they put so much of a focus on that versus, I hate to say it, but sullying it with politics. The corruption of politics. Right. Yeah. And, and, a, and it, talking back to what we were, we were talking about before, especially 
when you have that community and you have some organ, some people within that community that do something that's going to damage it. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that happens, you know, with higher ups, you know, they're not the ones that are bleeding in the sand. You know, they're not the ones having to, you know, go through what these guys go through, the sacrifices. You know, they're sitting in a compound that's Warcom should have been secure. Apparently it's not in episode seven, but they're sitting in this secure compound while their teams are out there, you know, dying in other countries. And the families yeah. are, you know, are, you know, this, the, the, the scenes earlier in the book, in the series when they're having the funerals and, you know, and Reese is attending the funerals. That's the reality for these military families when there's a loss in the community. You know, not in any way to say the commanding officers don't feel that, but there is, you are removed from it when, exactly. you know, when it's not your spouse, when it's not your, you know, teammate that just isn't coming home. And, you know, you're with him on every deployment and you go out to the bars or go out and have dinner, you know, together and run into Taco Bell when you guys get back. You know, they're not having any of those experiences. You know, that's when, yeah. when you lose yeah. that guy next to you, that's, that's much different from a commanding officer losing a person, you know, five layers under them. You're so right about the layers, because when you're at a desk in an office looking at paper, most of the days, it's very different than looking at the guys around you, you know, yeah. day in, day out. Absolutely. But one more thing that wraps up in episode seven is that pillar hands over the files to Tony Layoon and the FBI. He says, right. you want to know about the drug trials? Well, here you go. And guess what? They were authorized by the Pentagon. You know, this right. shit runs right up the flagpole. Yep. And the DCIS agent, Azad, who is kind of covering for Hartley, says this was not an illegal operation. Pillar had an emergency use authorization signed by the SecDef approving the experiment of trying RD4895 on a SEAL platoon without their knowledge. So, yeah. There was legal cover for everything Admiral Pillar did, except Hartley's going to say he tried to cover it up. I didn't know about the tumors. He never reported on the tumors. You know, everyone was so deep getting their pockets lined. They wanted to hide things. Yeah. We're left in the dark whether Hartley knew that or not. But she's claiming to Katie, I authorized it because I care about our troops. I care about our special operators who are on these massive deployments they're they're suffering in a lot of ways and making sacrifices and this drug could help them and so i did something drastic i did something bold with the hope that this drug would help and i wanted to jump start that and kick start that as quickly as i could so right. she maybe did the wrong thing but she's trying to say for all the right reasons yeah well and that's I, I, we've seen that just in our world in the last couple of years um just with what we've gone through with covid and stuff I mean, testing on major drugs, that's never happened so quickly before. And so that leads, you know, that it makes people conspiratorial at times. And so if you've sure. got someone saying, well, I was doing it for the right reasons. Well, it's great to be doing something for the right reasons, but what are the consequences of those actions? So if you're, if you're testing a drug on soldiers, that's not fully vetted. It's not been through all the clinical trials. You know, and then there ends up being consequences to that and you go, well, you know, our intentions were great. Well, you know, tell that to all the dead people. Exactly. We didn't mean to kill you. We just, you know, we're trying to save other soldiers. Other, it doesn't, yeah, doesn't, doesn't you don't matter. get that. Yeah. And especially in the mind of James Reese that you don't have a pass for that, um, which happens in episode eight. He decides that there's a consequence to, uh, to what's been done. You betcha. You're being added to the list. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I guess absolutely. one person who's staying off that list for the time being is Tony, because he does, after the explosion go off, encounter Reese at his house. At his house, yeah. Tony sneaks in with a sinking suspicion that's where Reese detonated the bomb from. Right. And he confronts him. And, you know, Reese gets he to jump see, on he him. He got to see Reese's safe very up close and personal. <laughs> oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I'm sure Reese would have loved to use the contents of that safe on him, but he chose. And this was a decision Reese had to make when Tony very convincingly says, I know what happened to you. I know how they killed your family. I have evidence that it was Horn and Pillar, and we have them, Reese. Let justice take it from here. And Reese's response I am justice. 
Yeah, I, that was a powerful line. Well, and also, I think it was a powerful line, but also oh, the fact that he steps back from that moment. I know he he knocks him out, obviously, and he, he, he can't just walk, he turn around and walk away, probably going to get shot or handcuffed or whatever. Um, but I think that speaks to Reese's humanity. Because again, like I was talking about before, it's so easy for a character in any book to, or that's, you know, or series, whatever, to do something for the, it's, it's, it's back to the drug. Well, we're doing something for the right reasons. So Reese is trying to, you know, exact revenge, vengeance for what's been done to his brotherhood. But you can cross, you know, if, if he had killed, you know, Howard's son, would he have right. been any better than Howard? You know, if you take an innocent life and, you know, it, it is that gray area where these, these, these people have to operate, you know, and there's such thing as collateral damage and, you know, a bullet could get fired and you miss the target and you hit someone innocent behind it. I don't know what that would even be like. I've never had to experience that in life, but that's a much different situation from then. I'm just shooting that innocent person to get to someone else completely different dynamic there tony didn't do anything he's really doing his job his job his was job. there seems to be a crime i'm investigating right. that crime you are a suspect i need who is on yeah. the run and i have to take you in so on the run and there's bodies falling every bodies, time right? like yeah exactly so like, how could you how could you fault tony for going as hard as he can to try to catch this guy and, exactly. and Tony tells his team, our number one mission is prevent the loss of life. Right, exactly. So good guy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of our earlier guests mentioned this, and if you haven't read the books in a while, might not be so easy to see. I wasn't sure. I believed it at first, but Tyler, I got to thank Tyler, who came on with us for episodes three and four. He made the connection between Tony and Freddie Strain. Freddie Strain was the one who was sent after Reese. His SEAL team was actually tasked with taking in Reese on domestic soil, and there were a lot of issues about activating a military platoon on domestic uh, turf. I do remember that from the book now, now that you bring it up, yes. Right. But, but Reese lays a trap for them at this cabin in the woods. I think it's in New Hampshire. And Freddie is the guy who's like, I don't want to do this to him, but we got to take him. It's our orders. You know, We're sworn yeah. to that oath. And Reese doesn't kill them, even though he set the trap. And so Tony, he could have killed Tony in the mountains. He didn't take the shot, though he had him lined up here. He could have killed Tony again, but he realizes he's just doing his job and wasn't implicated in the conspiracy in any way. And in fact, Freddie Strain becomes a really, really close friend of Reese in book two. And most of what Reese is doing in In the Blood, Jack's newest book, is based on events with Freddie Strain. So I think Tyler was right that Tony could be a replacement setting up for a Freddie Strain storyline in season two and beyond. You'll remember better than me. So in the book, I do not believe there's an HRT team, right? No, there's no FBI. Because it's Freddie. It's, it's a SEAL team that's really going after him. Okay. Exactly. Which I'd be curious to know why they decided to make that switch. And Jack will probably talk about it in one of his podcasts that he's breaking down each episode. But yeah, interesting. It kind of helps you avoid the conundrum of what's the Latin phrase for using military personnel as law enforcement domestically? I don't know the phrase. I know it's not allowed, though. <laughs> Posse Comitatus, the Posse Comitatus okay. Act. And so you kind of get out of that because that had to be explained away in the book of why Freddie Strain's troop was tasked with going after Reese on domestic soil. So, yeah, yeah. again, probably a smart switch to make that the FBI. And, you know, bringing in HRT as your special forces, guys. Well, the average person out there has, well, say the average person, the average person that follows any kind of this type of book or whatever, these type of, 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 of TV series knows the FBI's job. I was fortunate. Um, it's about three years ago now. I actually did the FBI Citizens Academy down in Greenville, South Carolina. It was a 10 week program. And it was, you know, I, I had a deep respect for the FBI. I already finished the body man before I took the class. So I had researched the FBI a lot. I had known a few people that gave me some information. Mainly, I just researched as much as I could and made stuff up. But um, in taking that class, it really, my respect for the FBI grew exponentially. Just seeing what, you know, all the responsibilities and, and, and the stuff 
the stuff they had to go through. The, the, the hardest class was uh, the, the one on uh, trafficking, the Internet. And, I mean, they went into great detail with us about the stings and the operations that take place. And as, as a dad with two little kids and, um, and a young daughter, especially, man, you want to talk, you want to talk about a job that I don't know how you do it without, I hate to say it, without turning into a James Reese. I don't know how you could deal with that on a daily basis and seeing these creeps out there and what they do. And I, and I researched it for a book that I've not finished or not really worked on yet, but it, uh, one I was planning to, um, I looked into the trafficking and because uh, I'm, I'm in upstate South Carolina, Western North Carolina area. And in my research, I realized that Atlanta, and they talked about it some in the FBI class as well. That, That's a big Atlanta, hub, isn't it? Yeah, it's a huge hub for it. They move them in from South America there, and then Atlanta is where they spread them out. And it's just like you, you you read about these stories, and the FBI confirms it when you take when you work with them that it's it's crazy, it's absolutely crazy. But yeah, definitely the bringing the FBI into it from a series standpoint totally for me made sense and it, it fit appropriately and hrt i mean you know they're badasses i was supposed to go to Quantico to uh, because it got canceled because of uh covid because of covid we were supposed to, we had a trip scheduled for quantico i wasn't going to get to do anything cool uh, but we'd see hogan's alley and do a bunch of stuff i need to actually check with my contact and see if maybe they'll do it this fall or if they've rescheduled it every year it just kept getting bumped but i researched them pretty heavily in the course of the book because i have an hrt team um, in my story, and you know, they're operators. They're really, really good at what they do. But you know, unfortunately, they have to come across James Reese, who's just you know, he's 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 a step ahead, and and he's also lived it. You know, this is a character that's operated in this type of terrain for years, and this is this is second nature to him, second nature to hunt and also to evade. So, right, the best novel in the thriller genre I've seen with HRT, the FBI hostage rescue team, is Transfer Power. Vince Flynn's first Mitch Rapp book. You got it back it's there. It's actually yep. the I know we're not doing a visual, so no one else. We got can the see original. It, the first edition. It is the original. It is not only the original. I have a signed original from Vince. Wow. Not from Vince, he gave it to me. I've never told really the story of how I got it. One day I might, but um for now we'll just leave it as a mystery of how I got the signed copy. But that is my most treasured book I have. Wow. Well, we'll have you back so, on Mitch Rap Pod for your third No Limits appearance to talk about that one. There we go. I'll be, I'll <laughs> be glad to do that. But uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. That Not just because it's signed. That, to me, is my favorite favorite book that Vince did. What a book. Um, I did like Term Limits a lot, I will say. That was my was you know, say, first one I ever read. Just, yeah. just because of what was happening. I did really like the, uh, the storyline at that time in life. And, you know, and I, and I mentioned it, um, you know, several years back when, you know, when, when Jack was getting going, the Terminalist to me was the best debut since Vince came on the, uh, you know, and since Terminalist came out, basically. I think you're right. The Terminalist was the next one that just drew, it, you know, it, it dragged me, it dragged me into the story, really. Um, yep. And, you know, it, probably as a guy, as a dad with little kids and all the things you can imagine could happen. You think, you know, I can understand vengeance. I can understand retribution. I can understand if that happened to my family that to have that skill set to be able to take those people out. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, and you're right about debut books. I kind of think Term Limits, published in 1997, Vince's debut book. He got rejections. I think something close to 60 rejection letters, sold it out of the back of his car, friends and family. In St. Yep. Paul, Minnesota, he just pushed and pushed and grinded. It's a lot like you did with to bring the body man to print. But I think the way term limits hit for your generation, the generation between mine and yours, I think is what Terminalist is going to do for a lot of younger readers in their 20s or teens even. I think it's the book that can bring an entire wave of people into the genre. And uh, sure. the same way you or I got hooked on, I got hooked on uh, Vince, at least as a, as a teenager. I think a lot of people, especially young people are going to get hooked on Jack Carr and James Reese. So I see a ton of overlap between term limits and terminal list, which Jack had his copy of term limits on his first deployment. He remembered bringing it and reading it on the plane. So he met Vince. um, I think he said he met Vince at shot show in Vegas one time. 
And like he got to, I, th- I think if I remember correctly, he got to walk out of the uh, of the uh, center there with him. So he got to spend, you know, and it's like a, it's not a one minute walk that's you know right. in the middle of this huge convention center. So he got to actually spend because, and I think the the funny part in the interview when he mentioned it was it was back before like cell phone days. So he didn't get a selfie with him. He didn't get a picture with Vince Flynn. And of course, that was his only. I think think the only time he ever met him. But that you know, kind of full you know full circle. Then years later it's your book that's, you know, now, like you said, inspiring a generation and obviously having, having it turned into a series, having Chris Pratt, who's, you know, right. one of the more bankable right. and recognizable and just nice guy. I, I know, I know there's been critics. I, know, I, I think, you know, Rotten Tomatoes or whatever is dog the series. I think I saw that there, but the, so the crit, but the fans right. have given it just, you know, flying colors. And at the end of the day, who cares what the critics say? It's the, the the ultimate, you know, are your fans happy with what you've put out? Um, and, and Chris draws a crowd. And he is, the way he played that role, he is James Reese. I mean, he embodied that role and looks, he looks the part. He acts the part. Uh, did a, and for someone that I don't believe served any military uh, time, he's transformed himself visually and in, in character to be a member of the SEAL community, which is, you know, 100%. pretty darn cool. The range that he shows from the first scene, he's got to do the flashbacks with Lauren and Lucy all happy. And then the way that scene, that episode ends with him agonizing over her body on the kitchen floor. And then how the episode opens with him as an operator and a commander of his team. The range he shows in that one pilot episode is unreal. And, And yeah, he keeps it up throughout the series. I'm very glad, though, that you brought up the ratings on Rotten Tomatoes because (laughs) we have a segment on this podcast known as The Critics Can Go Scratch. And it would be remiss of me if I did not give the folks that segment my little quick rant here. Believe it or not, at the time of recording, the critic score has gone up. I think Hollywood and the Hollywood elites have learned of their mistake and are trying to make up for it. But uh, 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 too little, too late. 42% is the critic score up from, I want to say 35% or something when we started this, but they can go scratch because no one gives a shit about them. Instead, the people score, the one we care about climbed up to a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's just the conclusion of the critics can go scratch. And I have a feeling, Jack and Chris, I don't speak for any of them, but I have a feeling that they are a little bit more concerned about what the people say than what the critics are saying. Amen, brother. Yeah, absolutely. As always, we need to thank our patrons, our special operator, Sherry F., our special agents, Daryl, Kevin, George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, and Mark. Please subscribe, rate, and review using your favorite podcasting platform. Find us at thrillerpod.com or at Thriller Podcast. And as always, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. <laughs> <laughs>